my name is Joachim Foster, and I work as a pastor in Lillehammer, uh, two hours uh, north of Oslo. And um, I really wanted to come to side this time to share with you this presentation, because it's just something that I really feel that uh, we need to know as Adventists, and particularly as our understanding of Revelation. And <clears throat> by way of introduction, I thought I would ask you, what do you think this uh, is a picture of? You've no doubt looked at it, thought about it. What do you think it is a picture of? <clears throat> What's it supposed to illustrate? It's what's known as an infographic. It's showing information in a graphic way. And it's something that you uh, have to do with every day. Hopefully. Something that you have to do with every day, hopefully. <laughs> what do you think it is? Aha, you're very close. Very close. Something more, though, yeah? No? It looks like that, right? It looks like, um, uh, like a frequency, yeah? But um, it's not that either. Uh, it's closer to scriptural references. Um, that is close enough, I would say. Connections between scriptures, because this essentially is a picture of the Bible, right? This is a picture of the entire Bible. A mathematician looked at all the references that the Bible makes to other parts of the Bible, and then made a graphic to illustrate all those references to other parts of Scripture. So at the bottom you see the white lines are uh, chapters in the Bible. So what do you think the longest line here in the middle is? Psalm 119. That's exactly right. Um, and all these rainbow uh, lines that are going between those different white lines uh, is essentially references to different parts of Scripture. It's showing what I love most about Scripture. Uh, scripture is very self-involved. <laughs> it's always referencing other parts of Scripture to explain itself, right? It's what we ha as Adventists have brought about as the golden principle when it comes to interpretation that the Bible interprets itself, right? Like when we're interpreting the Bible, the Bible has to interpret itself. And when you're listening to someone who's speaking about the Bible, they also have to do that same principle, right? If they're going to say something about the Bible, they need to show it from the Bible, right? They need to show that the Bible is saying what they are saying. And that's our, that's the way in which we filter and quality assure a sermon, right? We have to see that the person is saying what the Bible is saying, and he has to show that by showing that the Bible is referencing itself, right? Um, yeah, of course, of course. I love that picture too. I show it very often in my presentations because it shows what I enjoy most about the Bible. Um, but I think that before we go before we go further, I think we'll just uh, start with a prayer. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for um, a new year in 2020, 2020 vision, a year of clarity. I pray, dear Lord, that uh, you may help us with our New Year's resolutions and the way in which we want to live our lives in the future. Uh, I pray that you may guide us and uh, help us to reach those goals. Uh, that you desire for us. And um, I pray that you may be with all the workshops today, that you may guide the speakers and inspire them and help them to bring across uh, the message that you want uh, to be preached today. And um, I pray that you may bless uh, 
um, this workshop here today, that we may learn what it is that you want us to learn about Scripture and understand what you would have us understand. We pray in your name, dear Lord. Amen. You know, before I became a pastor and studied at Newbold, I uh, went to Madison School. Some of the Madison School students are here at ASI. And um, I remember one time that I was at the boys' dormitory and I was reading the Bible and I was thinking to myself, how boring is this book? I was reading other books that I thought was much more exciting, like Shakespeare and Wilde and Bernard Shaw, and I thought to myself that I just can't get into this book. You know, I can't get into um, how exciting this book is. I thought, I was reading Exodus at the time, I remember, I was reading Exodus, and I was thinking to myself, it's so, um, uh, it's so, (laughs) it doesn't have a flow. And I thought to myself, how am I going to do this? And I remember praying to God, Help me, Lord Jesus, to discover the beauty of this book. I know it's important. I know that I should discover this Bible, and I want you to help me to discover it. And he certainly answered that prayer, because I tell you now now today that this is the most exciting book that I've ever discovered in my entire life. It is fascinating. And I hope that you're also there. I hope that that the Bible for you is fascinating. Um, not out of a sense of duty that you feel like because you believe in this that you should also be fascinated by the Bible. I hope that you are genuinely fascinated by the Bible, that you don't read it out of a sense of duty, but you read it out of a sense of devotion because you are excited about its message and excited about how it's made and put together. Because I tell you, when you start discovering how this Bible, how this book is put together, the book itself is an evidence for a God. Because these people, these human beings behind these chapters and books could not have done this on their own. They could not have done this on their own. And for that reason, I believe that it's an evidence for God in itself. And of course, we then have prophecy that it sees the future before it happens, another evidence for God. And we have also the system that is that is built up in the Bible. But it is fascinating, and I hope that today I can share a little bit about how fascinating that Bible, the Bible is. Um, but I hope you also discover it for yourself. If, you have, if you're not there yet, I hope that you get there soon, because it strengthens your faith. You know you're on the right track. Instead of hoping that this is true, instead of hoping that, you know, I hope that Jesus comes back again. I hope we're on the right track. I hope this is true. You become more and more settled in your faith. You know that it's true. And I hope, I, I wish that for all of you. Um, so let me start by asking you, uh, everyone, what are some of the covenants that God made with man uh, through the Bible? What are some of those agreements that he made with man? <clears throat> or let's take, it in, let's take it in order. What's the first covenant that God made with man? Eden, the Edenic covenant. What what is the covenant? If you want to, yeah, exactly. An agreement that he made between Adam and Eve, and of course they they broke that covenant, right? Um, what's the next one? It's still in Eden. Genesis three fifteen, right? What's the promise? What's the promise? Sorry to put you on the spot, but Ooh. 
Mm, exactly. I will put, it, put enmity between you and the woman and between her seed and your seed, right? He shall crush your head and you shall crush his heel. And coincidentally, right after that in Genesis 4, we have the introduction of the first seed. We have two family lines in Genesis 4 and 5. Cain's line, right after this is mentioned, the serpent's seed and the woman's seed, we have Cain introduced in Genesis 4 and his family line, and then we have Seth and his family line after that. Serpent seed, woman seed, and the conflict that, in, that, it, that is engendered between the two. So what's the, next, what's the next covenant after that? Noah, right. What's the covenant? Exactly, exactly. No flood. I will not send flood again upon the earth. And what was the sign of that covenant? The rainbow in the sky. Remember that for later. It's going to be important. The rainbow in the sky is the sign of the covenant. Um, what's the next covenant after that? Abrahamic covenant, right? That I will make your family line like the stars of the sky, and I will give you this land that you now wander in as a stranger. I will give you this land. Next covenant. What is it? Moses. The covenant with Moses. They became a nation. They who were a wandering family now are a nation under God. What's the next covenant? Yeah, no, that's the thing that I'm looking for here because there is a covenant between David. Exactly. Oh my goodness, that was uh, that's going to be bad for the recording here. <laughs> but uh, the Davidic covenant. You know, we don't often talk about this, but I tell you now that the Davidic covenant is foundational for the book of Revelation. Foundational. And I want to show you why, and I want to show you how. And I want to show you how exciting that covenant is. But what is the covenant? What is the covenant that God made with David? Yeah. Exactly. He shall establish his throne forever. And um, there's one other element there. Uh, one thing that he's going to do. But we're going to look at it. So let's just look at it. Let's go to the next... Uh, um, oh, no, wait. I want to tell you this first. <laughs> you know, Ellen White says about the book of Revelation something that I find very interesting. She says that when we as a people understand what this book means to us, the book of Revelation, there will be seen amongst us a great revival. A great revival. We do not fully understand what the book of Revelation means for us. And... Um, Part of that is what I want to share with you today, like what the book of Revelation means for us. Um, but the saddest part of this uh, statement is that she says there will be seen amongst us a great revival. You know, there's not going to be a revival of the entire church, apparently. But some people are going to see what the book of Revelation has to do with us as a movement and as a people. And amongst us, there will be seen a great revival. And I hope that we will see it. I hope that everyone here in this in, the, in this in this auditorium will see that great revival uh, in their own lives and also in other people's lives, and that we will see also what the Book of Revelation means for us. Because I tell you, people, the Book of Revelation is talking about us. It's talking about this movement. With with great humility, we say that the Book of Revelation is speaking about this movement, and it's important. It's one of the central uh, central red threads for the end time. And I want to show you some of that today. 
So let's go to the Davidic covenant, because in order to see this in the book of Revelation, we have to build some backstory here from the Old Testament. We have to build the foundation for when we come into the book of Revelation, then we can see it more clearly. Okay? So the Davidic covenant, who has, who wants to read from 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 8 to 13, where the promise is made to David? <coughs> Sorry, just follow now. This end, this the end point of what he's promising David. Yeah. So this is the Davidic covenant, the beginning of the promises to David um, that he makes. And I, I use the Amplified Bible because the Amplified Bible tries to pick up the nuances in the language. And I like how uh, it says, He shall build a house for my name and my presence. You know, uh, his name is his character, his character is presence. But he shall build a name for my name and my presence, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And let's just... Uh, take some points from uh, this description of the Davidic covenant. If we look here, it says, basically a summary of what has just been said to David is that David's descendant shall succeed him and establish his kingdom. Right? Now a man who's a king who wants, wants of course, for his family to continue to be kings. Right? His family line to be kings. And that is exactly what God is promising him, that your family line will continue to be kings. And David's descendant shall succeed him and establish his kingdom. His descendant shall build the temple for God. Because that's what David wanted to do, right? He wanted to build a temple for God. And God said, you are a man of blood. Your descendant will, uh, will build uh, the temple, right? His descendant shall build the temple for God's name and presence. And the throne of his kingdom shall be established forever. So who did this? Who fulfilled this? Solomon. He did fulfill these particular types, these particular qualifications that God gave to David. That your descendant will establish your kingdom, build a temple, and I will establish his kingdom forever. <clears throat> and it's no surprise that when Solomon built this temple, 
he sees this and he says this to everyone who has gathered. He says that this promise that he gave to my father has now been fulfilled. If you go to 1 Kings chapter 8, we have the temple finished. It's built and Solomon is there. And I want you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 20. If someone has, if someone wants to read 1 Kings chapter 8 and 20. Where Solomon recognizes that this is being fulfilled. Exactly. So you notice that he repeats, before before verse 20, he actually repeats everything that was said to David earlier in, um, in the passage that we read earlier. He repeats all of what was said to David, and then at the end he says, Now I have done all of this. I have created, I have, I have established his throne, I have made the temple, and have built a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. So it's no surprise that he sees himself as the fulfillment, and he is the fulfillment. And for that very reason, I want to take certain things from this fulfillment, this apparent and ostensible fulfillment of this covenant. Because as we know, the Davidic covenant continues after this, doesn't it? It continues. Solomon is not the full fulfillment of this promise. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, if you're wondering with what I'm saying here, we're not stopping here. Solomon is not the full fulfillment, but he is a part of the fulfillment. And for that very reason, we have to look at certain parts of that fulfillment to appreciate the absolute fulfillment of Jesus Christ. Yeah? Are you with me? Okay. So let's take some parts of um, that description. So we have to look at this dedication that Solomon has. <clears throat> the temple dedication in 1 Kings chapter 8, the promise fulfilled. His son has established his throne, has built the temple, and he sees that as the fulfillment. Now let's look at some characteristics of this fulfillment. Okay? So, let's look at 1 Kings chapter 8. I don't want to read the whole chapter. There's a lot of details. And for the sake, I, I wanted to try and minimize uh, <laughs> the... Um, the details in this uh, presentation just to get the point across. So let's look at some details. <clears throat> if we go to First Ch Kings chapter 8 and verse 1 and 2, if someone ha wants to read verses 1 and 2. That they might bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is Zion. Therefore, all the men of Israel assembled with King Solomon at the feast in the month of Etanim, which is the seventh month. Mm, exactly. Now, notice one thing. Everyone who's relevant to that time is gathered together with Solomon at Mount Zion. Yeah? They're gathered together at Mount Zion, and the temple is ready. The temple is finished, and they're going to bring the Ark of the Covenant up to the temple. Yeah? And this is in the seventh month. The seventh month. This is important. These details are important to see its end-time fulfillment. And uh, um, the seventh month, as we all know, is an important month for Israel. So let's keep going. If someone has, wants to read First Kings chapter 8, verses, uh, verse 65. 
great assembly, from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt, before the Lord God, for seven days for the dedication, and seven days for the Feast of Tabernacles. Yeah, exactly. So let me, let me just ask you. Um, every year we celebrate festivals here as well, right? We have uh, in Norway we have the seventeenth of May. We have we have um, uh, Christmas. We have Easter. We celebrate festivals every year, and they they make a certain structure for our year. The same thing is true of the Jews. They also had festivals that God gave them. Let me ask you: What festivals did they celebrate in the seventh month? There's three of them. What festivals were they that they celebrated in the in the seventh month? You know them. You've heard them. Not the Passover. Passover is the first month. Um, the, the seventh month? Blowing of the trumpets. The first day of the seventh month, they start blowing the trumpets for ten days. Until the tenth day. What is on the tenth day? We were talking about it here yesterday. The Day of Atonement. On the 10th day of the 7th month, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, is celebrated. And then five days after that, what do they celebrate? The waving of the branches, yeah? Is that what you're doing? Ah, yeah, the booths. The booths, yeah, exactly. Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is celebrated on the 15th day of the seventh month. Yeah? So notice this. If you're celebrating the dedication seven days before the festival of tabernacles, and the day of atonement is ten days, oh no, five days before the, uh, the festival of tabernacles, then you're going over the day of atonement, right? You're going over the day of atonement. Let me ask you, why didn't they celebrate the day of atonement? One more time. The day, the festival hasn't happened? Right. Right. No, it's not that which I'm after. But yeah, yes. Exactly. Exactly. It's completely new. There's no point in, uh, in, uh, in, in cleansing the temple. There's no cleaning. Because it's a new temple. You don't need to cleanse the temple. You don't need to have a Day of Atonement. Uh, because it's new. It's being dedicated. Right? It's being dedicated. But they do go over... Exactly. Yeah. They've got that to look forward to. But, <laughs> but that's, that's the essential point. This is a new temple. It's being dedicated, therefore you don't celebrate the Day of Atonement in the same way that you would normally, because this is new. And therefore, straight after that, you can celebrate the Festival of Tabernacles. Right? Commemorating their exit from Egypt. But I want you to notice that this is the time for both of those festivals. It's the seventh month. And all the elders are gathered. It's the seventh month, and the Day of Atonement is celebrated, and the Festival of Tabernacles is celebrated in that month. This is important for seeing what comes later. Okay, so let's keep going. Just want to summarize what we hear, what, what we have seen then here in Second uh, Samuel uh, chapter eight, not chapter seven. <laughs> um, no, First Kings chapter 8. Goodness me. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know what the Second Samuel thing is doing there. But anyway, to summarize what we've looked at here, the temple is completed. The son of David, Solomon, is there with the elders, the heads of the tribes, 
and they're assembled at Mount Zion. Everyone's assembled at Mount Zion. And it's the seventh month. And they celebrated the dedication for seven days and the festival of tabernacles for seven days. The two big festivals for the seventh month. Yeah, This is important to see uh, the antitypical fulfillment of this temple being built. Alright. Um, <clears throat> of course... You know, one of the promises in the Davidic covenant was, of course, that his throne will be established forever, right? But um, we know what happened, right? Solomon went after other gods, and Rehoboam after him was even worse. He created conflict with Jeroboam, and Jeroboam created another form of worship up in the north of Israel. And uh, it just went completely out of control, right? Ten tribes are lost to Assyria, and uh, you just have Judah and Benjamin again. And um, eventually Solomon's temple was ruined and destroyed and taken to um, Babylon. So the th- the, it, apparently it looks like the Davidic covenant has also been ruined, right? Because he said he would establish his throne forever. But... Uh, the temple has been taken away. And those of you who are uh, students and uh, will probably see that this is actually the Arch of Titus from Rome. <laughs> but the same message is brought across, right? I mean, uh, they had different clothing, but uh, essentially the process was the same. They took the articles of the temple to Babylon, right? <laughs> um, but uh, this was a good picture for that. And you can imagine, you can imagine, they know the Davidic covenant, the Israelites. And here you have basically everything's gone to ruin. Everything's gone to ruin. But the promises to David are continued through the Bible. And I want to, I want to look with those, I want to look uh, with you at those promises. Okay. So let's go, um, to different parts of the Bible where the Davidic covenant is repeated and said that it's not over. It's not finished. I'm not done with this. God is basically saying. <clears throat> and I want, to, I want to show you a particular way in which this is um, represented. So in Isaiah uh, chapter 11 and verse 1, it says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. Now, who's Jesse? Father of David. Exactly, right? Uh, there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. That's David, right? David came out of Jesse. He's a rod. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. You know, all of us sitting here, we're part of a family tree, right? And uh, we are a branch of our particular family tree. Uh, I have a cousin who <laughs> who studies uh, the, the, our family history, and he's gone all the way back to, he would say, Adam and Eve. But um, it's uh, it's interesting to see the way in which he portrays it, all these different branches that are branching off in different directions. And uh, that's what's being portrayed here. David's family tree. It's not finished. Someone else is coming. Yeah? A branch shall grow out of his roots. And in that day, in verse 10, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. Now, we all know who we're talking about here now, don't we? Talking about Jesus. And this is the fulfillment. I mean, like, look at us here. We here, today, sitting here. We're those, we're those Gentiles. 
We're the Gentiles that have sought after him and his rest is glorious. Yeah, that's why we're sitting here. That's the fulfillment of this particular chapter, uh, this particular verse. Let's keep going. Uh, I just want to show how all those promises to David are repeated after Solomon is long gone. The apparent fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. In Jeremiah chapter 23 and verses 5 and 6, it says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and, I, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days, Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord, our righteousness. In verses 33, I'm sorry, in chapter 33, verses 14 and 16, I just want to emphasize how uh, the Davidic covenant is referenced in the, in the prophets. Uh, behold the days come saith the Lord that I will perform that good thing which I have promised you know he, he's he's well aware of the covenant that he's made with David he's well aware of his promises and this is what you got to love about God he is well aware of what he has promised he's not finished he's going to fulfill those promises they are coming right he's well aware of them which I have promised unto the house of Israel and to the house of Judah in those days and at that time will I cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. Okay, here's the most important one. Uh, I wanted to emphasize the fact that he's referenced that the Davidic covenant is referenced by use of that picture, the branch, right? Zechariah chapter six, verses twelve and thirteen. People have come back from Babylon from the captivity in Babylon, and they are starting to build the temple again. The temple which, when built, everyone will cry because they, because those who remember Solomon's temple will see how anticlimactic this temple is. Yeah? And they'll stand there and cry because of it. Um, but while this temple is being built, to Zechariah, a promise is made. A very interesting promise. A revolutionary promise, to be honest. Okay, get a load of this. And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. Um, now we know who that is. And he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. There you have the other part of the Davidic covenant, right? Before it's been telling us about the king who's coming, right? The king who's coming. And that was one part of the Davidic covenant. But here is the other part of the Davidic covenant. He shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne. What is controversial about that? It's very controversial. What is controversial about that? A king and a priest. That doesn't happen in Israel. There's kings and there's priests. There's not a king and priest. Yeah? Uh, a priest upon his throne? That doesn't happen. But he shall be a priest upon his throne. And he shall build the temple of the Lord. That's the, that's the promise. That's the prophecy. And here we have now all the elements of the Davidic covenant come together. He shall be a king. He shall build the temple. And he shall be a priest. <clears throat> And the council of peace shall be between them both. 
So now we have everything that we need to go to Revelation to see it. Um, and let's go then to uh, Revelation. <clears throat> you see, the interesting thing about the, be- the beginning of Revelation is when you first see Jesus, he is introduced to us as a priest. He is clothed as a priest, and he is standing amongst the seven candlesticks. And it is interesting to notice his relationship to those candlesticks. His relationship to those candlesticks is the same as the relationship of the Old Testament priest to the candlesticks. Yeah, I want you to notice that, that he is doing the same thing that the Old Testament priest would do in the holy place with those candlesticks. Just quickly, uh, without reading everything, um, twice in Exodus and Leviticus, uh, and in, in many other places, but these two I, I, I uh, brought, brought out here. You shall command the Israelites to provide you with pure oil of crushed olives for the light, to cause it to burn continually. Right? Those lights had to burn continually. That was part of the covenant. Aaron and his son shall keep it burning from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute to be observed on behalf of the Israelites throughout their generations. Not to go out. It has to maintain its light. Burning continually. And in Leviticus, basically the same commandment is repeated. Aaron shall keep it in order from evening to morning before the Lord continually. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. He shall keep the lamps in order upon the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord continually. Now, what does that have to do with Jesus' relationship to the seven churches? How does that relate? Tell me. He's always there. He's He's maintaining the candlesticks, right? Yeah. He's walking amongst the lampstands and he's maintaining their faithfulness. Yeah. He's making sure that they remain faithful, that they remain burning, that they don't go out. He's making sure that they're burning continually. Yeah. Just like the Old Testament priest. He's doing the same thing with the seven candlesticks as the priest in the Old Testament would do with the candlesticks. He's making sure that they are burning continually. And the interesting thing here is, is that Jesus is first introduced to us in the book of Revelation as a priest. Yeah? He's introduced to us as a priest because it said, as a, he shall be a priest upon his throne and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yeah? He's introduced to us as a priest. This is also relevant because he's in the holy place. Yeah? This is the holy place ministry. Um, this is the second stage of his uh, plan of salvation. <clears throat> I want you to notice that it's interesting when you see how the book of Revelation starts. First you have the seven candlesticks, then you have the seven seals. And right smack in the middle you have the throne room of God. Yeah? Priest upon his throne. A priest upon his throne. Candlesticks, priest, seals, king. Because he shall be a priest upon his throne and he shall build the temple of the Lord. And in case you're wondering whether it is Jesus on that throne, I want you to notice what he says to Laodicea. He who overcomes and is victorious, I will grant him to sit beside me on my throne as I myself overcame and sat down beside my father on his throne. Jesus is on that throne. He's sitting there with his father. Right? 
And I just want to re-emphasize, look at this. The promise was that he shall be a priest upon his throne and he shall build the temple of the Lord. When we first see him, he's introduced as a priest amongst the seven candlesticks. He has the same relationship to those candlesticks as the priest in the Old Testament had to the candlesticks. And then what comes after that is the throne room of God. We see Jesus sitting upon the throne with his father. And then after that, we have the seven seals. Priest, king. And I want to show you how when in Revelation 4 and 5, how the Davidic covenant is right there, smack in the middle. And everything is there. Okay. And just remember... It would be weird, wouldn't it, if he said, uh, if you overcome now, you will sit on my throne as I am sat with my father on his throne. It would be weird when we go into the, the, the throne room of God that he, he wasn't there, right? <laughs> yes? Mm. And there are the yes. The table of showbread has two crowns on it. Yeah, it's, uh, it has it has crowns around it uh, as part of its uh, building. Like it was, they said that they sh- two crowns, one on the bottom, one on the top. So yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Hmm. Yeah, no, no. Um, he's sitting. He's sitting on the same throne as his father. You know, it's a. Uh, mm. But he says that I'm sitting beside my father on his throne. Yeah. Anyway, let's not get caught up in those details. <laughs> yes. Hmm. Quite possibly the six, the two, the two stacks of bread. Yeah. Um, but let's just keep going. Uh, let's go into the throne room of um, of, of God in Revelation four. <clears throat> I want you to notice the. In fact, does someone want to read uh, Revelation chapter four, the first four verses? Anyone? The first voice which I had heard, speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, which was seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed mm. in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Mm. Yeah. So here we have um, a whole lot of symbols put together, right? And um, thinking about the first picture that we started with, how the Bible references itself to explain itself, um, what do we do when we see this... Uh, assembly of symbols and pictures put together 
what what is it that we should do to try and discover what it is that is uh, being mm, the message that's trying to be conveyed here? What should we do? References. We go to other parts of the Bible to understand what is being said here. So let's take it step by step, okay? Um, the first, those, those first few verses there in Revelation 4. He who sat upon the throne, he was described as a jasper and the fiery sardius. Yeah? Now, where should we go to understand these, this particular reference? Uh, he's described as these two precious stones, jasper and sardius. Um, where do we go to explain this? Ezekiel twenty-eight is where these um, the, where these um, uh, <laughs> where these precious stones are portrayed. Uh, there's there's only one, two other places, and I'm thinking about one particular place that really does explain uh, what's being portrayed here. What other place would that be? What are you thinking about particularly? Yeah. Exactly. The breastplate that is on the high priest's uh, breast, his chest. Um, where we, When we go there, we see what is being portrayed here. Because, notice this. The jasper and the sardius stone is the first and the last stone on the breastplate of the high priest. It's the first and the last stone. Yeah, let's, we'll, we'll go there, yeah. Um, it is like just how Jesus introduced himself first to John, right? He says, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And then when we see him sitting upon the throne, he is described as the Jasper and the Sardius stone, the first and the last stone on the breastplate of the high priest. What else is interesting is the names of... The children of Is- the children of Jacob are written on these stones. Which name is written on the first stone? They're, they're in order of birth, they're written in the order of their birth as well. So, which name is written on the first stone? Reuben, exactly, Reuben. And the last, which is written on the last stone? Benjamin, exactly. Now, pop quiz. <laughs> uh, Reuben, what does the name mean? What does the name mean? No, no, not a liar. That's Jacob. <laughs> yeah. Reuben, what does the name mean? Yeah, it does. It does say in Genesis. Reuben means, behold a son. Behold a son. Now tell me, what does Benjamin mean? That's perhaps better known. What does Benjamin mean? No? Close? No? Well, that's what Rachel first said, right? Benoni, son of my suffering. But then Jacob said Benjamin, which means something else. Uh, Benjamin means... Son of my right hand. Son of my right hand. Now, get a load of that, right? In Genesis, in Revelation chapter 4, Jesus says, just right before you enter the throne room, He says, 
You will sit upon my throne as I am seated with my Father on his throne. And then when we see the throne, we see God portrayed as a jasper and a sardine stone, the first and the last, which names were on Reuben and Benjamin. Behold a son, son of my right hand. That's cool, right? That is cool. That is awesome. (laughs) Behold a son, son of my right hand. And I think it's also relevant to take what Rachel said. You know, she first called him Benoni, which is son of my suffering. So I think that's relevant here as well, because Jesus is absolutely the son of his suffering as well. But behold a son, son of my right hand. Let me see, just uh, let's go back here. Yeah, so the first and the last stone on the on the breastplate, right? Jasper, sardine, behold a son, son of my right hand. And so we know we're on the we know we're on the right track here with uh, interpreting uh, what's what's being portrayed in Revelation four, the breastplate of the uh, the breastplate of the high priest, because what is also an interesting symbol that comes across in Revelation chapter four, that's also being portrayed as a precious stone is this rainbow, right? This rainbow. It's not a typical rainbow. It doesn't have all the colors. It has one color, emerald. It's an emerald rainbow. So what do you guys think is, let me just put it this way, whose stone is emerald? In, in the, on the breastplate of the high priest, whose stone is emerald? You said it? Judah. Judah. That is awesome. It's, it's, I, it's awesome. I just have to say it. It's just amazingly put together. Now, some of your, um, in the Hebrew, it's the fourth stone. But the NIV puts it a little strangely. But it's the fourth stone in the Hebrew. So I double-checked it. But emerald is the rainbow. And emerald is Judah's stone. And let's just repeat what was said in Genesis 9. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of a covenant. Yeah, shall be a sign of a covenant. A solemn pledge between me and the earth. So the rainbow is a sign of the covenant. Here we have the sign of the covenant that God has with Judah. Yeah, the sign of the covenant that God has with Judah. We have here front and center, the Davidic covenant. So I'd like to basically call this rainbow the Davidic rainbow. Because what is being said here is that this, this is the fulfillment of the promises to David, that I will establish his throne forever, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. For he shall be a priest upon his throne, That's how he's introduced, right? He's introduced as a priest. And then after he starts opening the seals, the king, kingly reference, and he shall be a priest upon his throne and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Now, there's more that indicate also the building of the new temple. You know, when the Levites were first organized as a priesthood, Moses divided them into eight courses. He divided the Levites into eight different groups to aid the high priest in his service. Samuel 
made it into 16. And this is easy to remember. In 1 Chronicles chapter 24, Solomon divides it into 24 courses of the Levitical order. 24 different groups of the Levites. So here when we have David's son and the, co- the, pro- the, the rainbow of the covenant, the fulfillment of that covenant, we also have the 24 elders that are going to aid the high priest in his service. And that's what they do, right? When we read through the book of Revelation, they are helping. They are helping uh, John go where he needs to go, see what he needs to see. And they are aiding John in his discovery of what Jesus is doing. Um, so I think that when, when we see here the true Solomon, the true son of David, it's relevant to take the 24 courses of the Levitical order uh, as these 24 elders. And those beasts, right? Those beasts that are standing there in front of the throne. Where do those beasts come from? There's only two places in the Bible where these beasts are mentioned. Where do those beasts come from? Ezekiel, exactly. Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is all about the corruptions of the present temple and the building of the new temple. Right? The corruptions of the present temple and the building of the new temple. And it's it's too much to go into here, but when you look at Ezekiel and the book of Revelation, those beasts those beasts are helping Ezekiel through his discovery of the new temple as well. Because this is the true fulfillment of all those promises that we read in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Zechariah. Uh, this is the true son of David, whose throne will be established forever, and who will build the temple of the Lord and shall be a priest upon his throne. Revolutionary in those times, no priest sits on a throne, but Jesus Christ does. Jesus Christ sits on a throne, and he shall, as a priest, sit upon that throne and build the temple of the Lord. Sorry that I keep repeating it, but I just want to get that point across, uh, that this is now the, f- the f- foundational start of Revelation uh, lots, lots of uh, red threads are being put together in Revelation, but this is definitely one of those foundational threads that the promises made to David are now going to be fulfilled, and he's going to build the temple of the Lord. Now, what is that temple? What is that temple? Let's look at that. Let's look at the fulfillment of when that temple was built. <clears throat> yeah, you see, there's, there's two places in the Bible where you see the animals, right? Ezekiel. And here in Revelation, and in Ezekiel, it's all about the corruptions of the present temple and the building of the new temple, right? There's other things in Ezekiel, of course, but this is like the central emphasis that is being put across in Ezekiel, how the temple is corrupt and God's going to build a new one. Yeah? And um, it's interesting that they are put here in that particular context where a new temple is going to be built. Yeah? A new temple is going to be built now. Fulfilling Ezekiel, because we all know that Ezekiel's temple never was built, right? But it's interesting, the way in which the Ezekiel, the way in which the temple is described in Ezekiel, we see that in the New Jerusalem, a river flowing from the center, uh, those different measurements, we see it being fulfilled in the New Jerusalem. So that's the new temple. But let, let's look at the fulfillment of this, because he was going to build a temple for the name of the Lord. Right? 
So let's look at the fulfillment. You see, and here we come to Revelation 14. Here we come to Revelation 14. Oh my goodness, it's gone. <laughs> you see, um, before before we go to this, can someone read Revelation 14 verses 1 to 6? No, 1 to, f- 1 to 4. <clears throat> before before we go to this look and behold on Mount Zion stood the land and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads and I heard a voice from heaven like a roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures. And behold, the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. Exactly. Who's there? Who's there on uh, on Mount Zion? Notice, where are they? They're on the Mount Zion, right? When Solomon completed his temple, they gathered together at Mount Zion, right? And everyone who's relevant is there. You have... Uh, Jesus Christ, the Lamb, the new, the, the, the true son of David, like Solomon. Solomon was there. Uh, you have the, all the elders are gathered there at Mount Zion. You have the four beasts are gathered there at Mount Zion. And they're gathered there with the 144,000 which have the name of the Father in their foreheads. Because what Solomon was building is a temple for the name of the, for the name of the Father, right? No, for the name of God. He was building a temple for the name of God. And here you have them all gathered at Mount Zion. And guess what? It is the seventh month. It is the seventh month. The antitypical seventh month. And here we come to what is typical Revelation, uh, no, sorry, Adventist identity in Revelation 14. I want to show you that all those festivals are here as well. Yeah? Because look at this. Normally when we think about Revelation 14, we think about three angels. Yeah? Three angels of Revelation 14. We're very well acquainted with those. But there are six. There are six angels in Revelation 14. And they have much to do with each other. Yeah? They have much to do with each other. And you can see it here portrayed in the black, the different parallels between them. You see, the first and the fourth angel, they both call with a mighty voice. Yeah? The second and the fifth angel do not call with a mighty voice. The fifth angel says nothing. (laughs) But still relevant. And the third and the sixth angel cry with a mighty voice. Yeah, that parallel is not there by accident. It's not a coincidence. It's biblical structural parallelism, which is important to notice. It's basically saying that these two have with one another to do. Yeah? It's 
saying that these two parts of the chapter have to do with each other. And I want want you to notice also that they both have to do with a time which has come. The first angel says, the time for his judgment has come. The fourth angel says, the time for the harvest has come. Now, what do you think of when you think of that? Judgment and then harvest. Judgment and then harvest. This is foundational to the people of Israel. Judgment and then harvest. What do you think of? Yeah, exactly. Yom Kippur, judgment. What about harvest? No? What comes after the Day of Atonement? Tabernacles. The Tabernacles is a harvest celebration feast as well as commemorating the time that they came out of Israel. It's also commemorating the the harvest that has come. You see, it's judgment and then harvest. Both of these festivals are in the seventh month. Every year, just like you and I here now are in Christmas. Christmas has just happened. New Year's is coming soon. For every year, it's the same for the Israelites. The Day of Atonement comes, and then comes the Festival of Tabernacles. These two festivals are celebrated in the seventh month. Day of Atonement, and then Tabernacles. Judgment and Harvest. And this is, of course, relevant because they were all gathered on Mount Zion. Everybody. They were gathered there on the seventh month when the first temple was built. Solomon, the son of David, the first fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, he had built the temple for the name of the Lord, and they were all gathered there at Mount Zion for the temple dedication. And they were gathered there on the seventh month to dedicate this temple to the Lord, this temple for the name of the Lord. And the 144,000 are there too. <coughs> there you have the Day of Atonement, the second to last festival in God's calendar. And right after that, you have the Festival of Tabernacles, the Harvest Festival. Let's see. You see, this is the only place in the book of Revelation where the harvest is mentioned. It's not mentioned before. It's not mentioned after. Uh, this is the only place that the harvest is mentioned. And uh, we as Adventists, we have been focused on the time of judgment. Um, the time, the Day of Atonement, the start of the Day of Atonement, 1844. Um, but the chapter continues, and there is another time that is coming. There are two festivals here being portrayed in Revelation 14. There is the Day of Atonement, and there is the Festival of Tabernacles, the harvest. And the 144,000, coincidentally, in the beginning of the chapter, are portrayed as the first fruits. Now, let me ask you, what is a first fruit? What is a first fruit? This is true. Uh, I was thinking more generally. Like, what, what is a first fruit, just generally? Like... Um, if you see a first fruit today outside on the, in the orchard, what is it? Yes. Yes. What you say is completely right. It's a, it's, it's, it's an offering to God. 
but the first fruit, just generally speaking, is that which is first ready, right? It's basically an example of what the rest is going to be. What the rest is going to be. And therefore, it is also um, a perfect example of what is coming, right? Of what is coming. It is first ready. It is also an example of what is coming. And, yes, Revelation 14 and verse 5, I think it is. Yeah, Revelation 14 and verse 5. If 4, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> and just thinking about the, the theme of our convention, ASI, follow the Lamb, you know. Um, these are they who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These are they who have been ransomed, purchased, redeemed from among men as the first fruits for God and the Lamb. I just want you to appreciate how the promise was that the son of David will, his throne will be established forever and he shall build the temple of the Lord. And he completed that on the seventh month. They were all gathered there together. Just like in the beginning of Revelation 14, they are all gathered at Mount Zion. And it is the antitypical seventh month. And these 144,000 are portrayed as the first fruits. An example of the rest of the harvest that is coming. So, you see, <laughs> what bothers me today in Adventism is that Oscar Wilde once said, everything that is popular is wrong. And believe me, that's how I feel about the theological climate and the ecclesiastical climate that we have in Adventism today. Everything that is popular is wrong. And one thing that is very popular is talking about how wrong final generation theology is. Last September, I was in, uh, I was in Serbia with uh, 1,500 pastors. And uh, one of those pastors was having a workshop, and his workshop was all about how final generation theology is wrong. He had his chorus of supporters on the one side saying, oh yes, it's awful, it's so bad, it's not good. And, uh, and then it's hard to be sitting there and listening to this about how wrong final generation theology is, and then basically saying at the end, look, listen, I think that you've basically said nothing. Uh, biblically, you've said nothing. You've just talked about how wrong it is from your perspective. <laughs> An article in Adventnet in Norway basically started out saying that uh, I don't know much about final generation theology, but let me tell you how bad I think it is. Uh, that's, that's basically the essence of the article. And that's what bothers me. People relate to this um, as, as wrong, but they never take note. Take note. They never give a biblical argument against it. It's always about what I feel, what I think. And what, how I feel this is wrong. There's never a biblical argument against it. Yeah, comment. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. passages, you know, between the, the modern theology uh, interpretation, I mean, 
for example, there is one professor in Andrews University. His name is uh, right. Stefanovic. Yeah. I know him and I re- listen to his ceremonies. But, you know, there is a big difference in many places. I don't know. I There's a big difference in many places. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that came across in the Revelation Sabbath School lesson. Uh, there's, there's many big differences. Yeah. There's a reason for this, uh, this missing of this uh, last generation. Because if you understand it wrongly, or if you don't understand it correctly, it can be very harmful. Yeah. So if you under- we don't understand what's sin, the nature of sin, the nature of salvation, we understand what is perfection in our wrong way. And this is very harmful in a very practical way. Hmm. So I see why people look down on this because we have been presented. That's very beautiful and that's correct. But what we understand for sin and what we understand for perfection needs to be on the back of our heads yeah. before we understand that. Because if we get this, oh, so this, we are the first fruits, we need to be example, we need to be perfect. And if we don't understand what perfect it is, oh, that's very bad. Yeah, this is uh, very true. And just before before I come to you, I just want to say something to that. That basically, yeah, it's absolutely true. You see, I wouldn't stand here and say how perfection is going to happen or how this is going to happen. All I am presenting is that it is going to happen. You know, He is going to have this people that is going to be sealed in their foreheads with the name, the character of God. He's going to have this people, and I think. Like I hope that you've uh, seen that they are both the temple that God that that Jesus is building, and they are also the first fruits of the harvest. Uh, and the harvest is the last thing. This is Jesus' second coming when he comes to collect his own, and they are the first fruits, which means they are the example of what God is expecting from the rest of the harvest, right? And so, these are two aspects to this final generation: that they are both the first fruits, and they're also the completed temple. And I'm sure that there are other things as well that we haven't discovered yet. But um, they're definitely God's end time plan and the final generation. I don't want to say how this is going to play out in our natures. All I want to say is Philippians verses one, uh, chapter 1 verse 8, that he who has begun a good work in you, he will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. It's not our work, it's his. All we have to say is, I want to be a part of that. And I'm not going to limit you. I'm not going to limit God in my life. If you say this is going to happen, great. I'm a part of that. I want to be a part of that. Uh, yeah. Oh, yes. Um, why the 144,000 other temple? It's because everyone is gathered at Mount Zion here, right? That's what happened at the, when the temple was completed and the temple was going to be dedicated. Everyone was gathered at Mount Zion to witness the creation of the temple, and it was also the seventh month. Now, uh, the, the first three angels is the Day of Atonement, seventh month festival, and the second set of three angels is the Festival of Tabernacles, the other, the other festival of the seventh month. So it's the antitypical seventh month, and they're also all gathered at Mount Zion, just like they were um, with Solomon when the temple was completed the first time. And it's also, the temple was to be built for God's name. And there you have the 144,000 with their name in their foreheads, right? Um, it's, it's, it's too close to be wrong. <laughs> uh, but I'm also like open to like other um, suggestions. But um, you had a comment here. Many people have been so upset by the 
bit about that last generation with theology, but I, I, I'm afraid many of them have never read the great controversy and see what Sister White is writing about it. Yeah. And, and sometimes they, they get the idea that this last generation will have a time where they live totally without any support from God. They have to stand in their own power. Yeah, which is completely wrong, yeah. It's completely, it's completely yeah. false. Uh, without a mediator doesn't mean that you're without power. No. Yeah. working with some people for some time, getting them close enough to himself. So what he's writing in the last chapter that these people doing right, they will continue to do right. Mm. And people not doing right, they will also continue to, yeah. to, to do wrong. Yeah, exactly. So, mm. but, uh, but it is something which is bringing people to the point of Yeah, mm, absolutely. That, there was a comment. It's just because these two festivals are always in the seventh month. Yeah, that, every year they're always in the seventh month. Leviticus 23, the, the, the list of the festivals, these three festivals, these two festivals are always in the seventh month. Yeah, so. No. Yes. I mean, the, the, these two put together is not an accident, right? Uh, that, that, that they're because they are belong together. Yeah. Um, there was a comment over here, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Revelation 7, you know, when they, when the angel goes out to seal the 144,000, it says, we seal the servants of our God. You are a servant of God before you are sealed, and they are sealed in their foreheads. And when you see them again in Revelation 14, you see in their forehead the name of God. So they're sealed. They're harvested, as you say. Yeah. They look at themselves. Yeah. yeah. And and I I sometimes say to young people, that is not nonsense. Stop because what they think about this professional whatever theology, it is what they understand and what they have been taught. Mm. I say drop that theology. You have to look into what is this really about. Yeah. Get your eyes upon Jesus. Then exactly, yeah. and I, and I would say to them, Philippians one verse eight, it's God's work. Yeah. Just just surrender yourself to God's work. Yeah, yeah. and don't look at yourself. Yes, we're sinful. Yeah. We're gonna we're gonna see more and more of that. How yeah. sinful we are. Yes. But my grace is sufficient for you, he says. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yep. So basically what you're saying is that all those 
promises um, uh, God gave to David and Solomon, they are fulfilled in a different way than they believe, but they're fulfilled like in heaven. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's it's type and anti-type, isn't it? It's uh, like it wasn't it wasn't wasted on Solomon. Like it was fulfilled in Solomon. It's important to see what Solomon did in order to see the anti-type. You see? Like uh, it's important what these people did. They're not wasting their time. <laughs> but um we see the greater fulfillment and they will one day see the greater fulfillment as well. I let me just take the last slide as well. Um cuz it's important that what what Alan White says about this a very important um, uh, reference in Christ Object Lessons, uh, page sixty nine. When the character of Christ is perfectly reproduced in his people, then he shall come to collect them as his own. Yeah, she's quite clear about this, and it's also supported in the Bible. Whatever anyone else may say, it's supported in the Bible. Uh, when the character of Christ, the name of God in the forehead shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. Christ Object Lessons, page 69. It's there, and it's supported in the Bible. And whenever you hear anyone speak against this, it's always not supported in the Bible, or they just don't use the Bible to support their arguments. It's always about, it's always about they're looking at themselves. Which is fine also, like you said, there, there, there's a reason for this. I mean, they look at themselves and they say, I can't do this, it's impossible. And it's true, they can't do it. We can't do it. We can't do it. But God can. And there's no way I'm going to limit God in my life. Let, let me just, let me just uh, share one thing with you. Okay, one comment first. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And this is one of the central criticisms that come against this final generation theology, that God is somehow dependent upon us. No, 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 no. We are dependent upon God. Yeah. Um, this is, this is one of the central things that's brought against it. And, uh, and, and also that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Another thing that's brought against it is that somehow the plan of salvation doesn't finish at the cross. The rest of God's plan in the sanctuary is dependent upon the cross. If the cross never happened, none of the other stuff would have happened. It's all dependent upon that one central first sacrifice. Louder, please. Louder. Yeah. Exactly. So, so a perfect uh, a, per, a person going around saying that they are perfect and they've reached it haven't reached haven't reached it. They've gone their own way. <laughs> yes, exactly. I just want to mention one thing, like one very interesting thing in the way in which Jesus related to people when he was here. Take the example of. Um, the general that said, I have a person who is sick, uh, my servant is sick, come and heal him. And then take Jairus's daughter. My daughter is sick. If you can but put your hand upon her, she will be healed. And then on the way to Jairus's daughter, there's a woman that says, if I can but put my hand on him, I will be healed. Yeah? So 
You remember when Jesus said to the general, the general said to Jesus, you don't need to come to my house. It'll be done if you just say it. I command soldiers, you command this, just say the word and it's done. When he came home, the very same time, it was done. Jairus, when he comes to Jesus, his faith, his expectation is that he needs to come to my house. He needs to put his hand upon my daughter and then he will be healed. Jesus could have done the same that he did to the general. He could have said, be healed and she would have been healed. But he meets Jairus where his faith is. Where his faith is. And on the way, there's another woman who says, if I can but put my hand upon him, I will be healed. This is the most important point. Our faith is part of determining what Jesus can do for us. Our faith. Therefore, I will never say that Jesus cannot do this in my life. Because then it's true for me. Then it is true for me. If I believe that Jesus can't do this in my life, it's true for me. Yeah? Bad guy, mm. but he had a great faith in God's brightness. Exactly. And 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 because of that, he got a measure, big measure of God's brightness already in this life. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I, I love this man because he taught teaching his faith in Christ. Exactly. So many wrong things yeah. in his life. And yet he climbed to his faith and said, yes, God can do it. In the psalm, he's praising the Lord always. Mm. And God is merciful, always. Yeah. yeah. Are there any final comments before we, yeah? Ellen Lloyd has also a comment, like a statement on concerning that the garment of the people of God is without any wrinkles or stuff like that, that he will come or something like that. Yes, so she repeats the same thought. Yeah, yeah. When we are presenting nothing of our own, because all the wrinkles in the, uh, because if we have the uh, righteousness of Christ upon us, if there's a wrinkle, it's because I have put it there. I'm saying I will put my work here, mm. and that's the wrinkle. So when we decide to take all of our own works, all of our own achievements away, that is when the uh, character of Christ is perfectly reflected in us. Mm, exactly. It's like, it's just declaring, that statement is declaring in its fullest that he is saving us completely without any of our works. Yeah. It is just so misunderstood. Mm, absolutely, yeah. I think that I... You see how I put the um, the circle in between the Day of Atonement and the Festival of Tabernacles. We we have always been right about 1844, the Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement starting there. Um, but we are in between the two festivals, Tabernacles and the Day of Atonement. We need to preach more about uh, the harvest and the first fruits of that harvest. Because I didn't have time in this presentation because, <laughs> as you know, there were a lot of details to bring up to get to this point. Um, but the book of Revelation, I believe, also teaches that the 144,000 will come out of the Adventist movement. Um, it, it, is, it is showing that. Like, let me just, <laughs> I need to say a little bit more, just not just leave it there. Uh, <laughs> uh, between the sixth and seventh seal, you have a parenthesis, a gap, a break. 
and it's the 144,000 being portrayed. Jesus is opening seals, but he's sealing the 144,000. A parenthesis. And then, in Revelation, in the trumpets, you have a parenthesis between the sixth and seventh trumpet. And that's all about the Advent movement, isn't it? And these structural parallels, these are saying that the one has to do with the other. Yeah? The 144,000, the Advent movement. They have to do with each other. And there's more to say about that. And I wish I could have brought it into this presentation as well. But I believe that the Bible, the Revelation, is teaching that the, the 144,000 will come out of this movement, the Adventist movement. But this, in this particular presentation, I wanted to show that Jesus has been building a temple, and we are that temple. And let us, you know this idea that God is going to seal us with the name, the character of God, creating this problematic uh, situations with uh, perfectionism we have we have created problematic situations before this is why people are concerned but let us just make sure that we are always focused on that this is his work and that I surrender to this work I want to be a part of it and I don't in any way want to limit him in my life so let's pray together as we finish <clears throat> Let, let's stand together <clears throat> Dear Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we just want to thank you that you that in the Bible we can see that you are actively involved in your plan that is being um, played out. That there is um, uh, that you are playing an active role in that plan, and help us, dear Lord, to see our role in that plan and how it is that we can meet you where you are right now and um, become a part of what it is that you are actively trying to accomplish right now. I pray, dear Lord, that uh, we may be part of this uh, first fruits, the 144,000 sealed in our foreheads with the name, the character of God, and uh, that we may be part of that promise that Ellen White says that when the character of God is perfectly portrayed in his people, perfectly reproduced in his people, then he shall come to claim them as his own. We pray, dear Heavenly Father, that uh, we may surrender to your work, and we surrender it to you. You do the work in us, O Lord. And uh, we may see our sinfulness, we may see our problems, but we know that it is you who is going to conquer those problems. And uh, it is your work, and we surrender to that. And I pray that you may be with us in our daily lives and the challenges that we have. Help us to meet those challenges, we pray in your name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.